All right. There's this verse in the book of Jeremiah at the end of chapter 8. This is just as God's people are um, being completely destroyed by a foreign power and being dragged 700 miles into exile where there'll be for a whole generation of people will die off before God restores them back to rebuild Israel 400 years before Jesus comes. And the prophet Jeremiah is kind of lamenting over all of this and looking at God's people languishing. And he says this in chapter 8, verses 20 and 21 and part in 22. He says, The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Since my people are crushed, I am crushed. I mourn, and horror grips me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is no, there no healing for the wound of my people? In, um, in the first century, or not in the first century, way before that, actually about 3,000 years ago, when Jacob, the patriarch, I know I skipped it in reverse, but just hang with me here. Go to the thing I'm going to. Um, when he was trying to send a gift to Egypt to garner the favor of this magistrate he didn't know was his estranged son, he wanted to send a gift, and he said, when you go down to Egypt, put some balm from Gilead in there, because even though Egypt was the richest empire in the world, one of the really special things about the region of Israel that nobody else had was this, the special ointment. I mean, in the ancient world, you worked outside. It was very sandy. It was very dry in a lot of these regions. You got rashes and cuts, and they'd get infected. Like, having like an ointment to put on there that really, really worked was incredible, and there was something about the balsam poplar that grew in that part of Israel on the Jordanian side up from sort of northern Israel all the way down to Jericho, th- that, um, that had these, spe- like, a really special property that the ointments made from it were incredibly healing. And so there were physicians from that whole region that um, would use these kinds of ointments to, to heal people, right? And it was like, the, it, it, in a way, it was like going to, like, Johns Hopkins or MD Anderson or something. It was like the top level of medical care you could get. And so these these folks who had really turned from God for like 450 years and were reaping the whirlwind of it, Jeremiah looks at them and he doesn't say, you're sinners and now you're damned and you're getting justly what you deserve, right? That was true, but that's not what he saw. What he he saw was sort of the end result was that there was no healing for their wounds. Mostly self-inflicted, now additionally Babylonian inflicted, even in some ways divinely inflicted, but like that these people bore a wound that there is no earthly healing for. There was no help for them. There was no way to make them better that you could, you could go to Gilead, you could get physicians, you could get the best medical care of the time, and it wasn't going to make it better. There was no earthly way to make this better. When I was an undergrad, um, I was at a really, really secular college, and um, there were a lot of, in, like, intellectual objections to Christian faith that were paraded around a lot. And so in those days, I studied a lot of philosophy and a lot of, like, argumentation, logical reasoning, historical background of the Bible, manuscripts, stuff, all this stuff that is referred to sometimes as, as apologetics. Because that's what I kept using day after day after day after day after day, right? And I remember there was one time I was, I was talking with a guy in the dorm, and we were going through a bunch of these arguments, and like he would give one, and I'd be like, well, there's an answer to that. It's this. And we went through five or six of these, and he finally got to this point where he was like, you know what? I just—my grandmother died when I was 12, and I'm, ne- I just, I'm never gonna 
except that there's a good God in the universe, right? And I didn't really key in on it then. It actually took me a while to realize that there's a very big difference between rational objections to propositions that are true or false, right? And emotional wounds that produce objections that have nothing to do with rationality. And because I was a younger man and I wasn't really in touch with my own personal wounds and because I didn't really think in those terms, I was thinking in terms of performance and success. And with logic, you can perform and succeed. I thought in terms of like, like blasting down objections with rationality, which has its place. And it's something that I, I adore. But as I began to walk through my life as an adult, and especially as I became a pastor, and I ran into Christians that had objections to faith, that we would go through the biblical material, we would talk about them from a rational perspective, and they'd be, and they'd say, yeah, that totally makes sense. It totally makes sense. I still feel the same way, right? I was, I was, um, I got a testimony from somebody who's been going to High Point for a while, and this person wrote, an incredible emotional healing has happened in my life in about the last two months. I've never felt so free. Some of the really severe emotional and relational symptoms I've been struggling for as long as I can remember, often several times a day, just no longer feel like they're controlling me. It doesn't feel anymore like I'm stuck inside myself. This is the most miraculous thing that has ever happened to me. For most of my life, I thought these dysfunctions were part of who I was, and at the same time, part of knowing who I couldn't be. I'd get flashes of freedom, and I've actively been fighting this, these dysfunctions for years but I've never gotten more free of them. It felt truly impossible to rid myself of these things, and now their power is gone. When this person writes about, like, how that affected them, the person wrote, um, there were three things that I couldn't shake. One was that I can't do it, and I'm not wanted. That, like, whatever it is that had to be done, or whatever was the case of me needing help from others or being valued by others, that I couldn't do it, and I wasn't wanted. I've heard another, other people say, I've heard a number of people say this in the last two months. I feel like all my life I've been too much and not enough. I've been too much to deal with and not enough to make it worth it. Right? I can't tell you how many times I've heard that or a version of that from people. Um, mostly younger people in their 20s and 30s, but it may just be because they're used to just saying stuff rather than holding it in, you know? The second was that God isn't really good that I cannot expect good things to come into my life. God isn't really good, or maybe he's good, but I'm not included in whatever group of people God is good to. But God's good to lots of people. I'm not one of them, right? And then thirdly, um, people don't love me. They act like they care about me. Some, they'll pretend that they love me. They'll say that they love me, but they won't really love me. Not when it matters, right? Now, you can—if you feel that, you can—I can preach to you until I am blue in the face— that God loves you, that you're enough, that God cares about you, you have all the gifts and intelligences and strengths that you need for what God is actually calling you to, that when God changes the human heart, it makes, he makes it capable of love, and therefore makes people like you capable of loving each other, and love is possible and real, and I can, I can preach that till I'm blue in the face, rationally, and yet I've seen people for, like, now for periods of decades just not feel it, just not believe it, like, down here in the core. Like, I've heard people say, look, Nick, I believe it, but I know I don't believe it, right? The reason why that matters so much is because 
Um, if you don't believe or understand that healing— specifically that emotional healing is part of your sanctification or maturing in Christ. You won't pay attention to emotional wounds, and the result of that is, is that they will, they will stop you and, and make you get stuck in your process of sanctification. Um, Layman Beecher, a preacher from the 1800s, used to say that it was like pushing a wheelbarrow along. And you have the strength to push the wheelbarrow, and the wheelbarrow is full of stuff, and you're making good progress, and then you like hit a root or something under the wheel. And it stops you. And like, you're like, what's wrong with this stupid wheelbarrow? And the answer is nothing. There's nothing wrong with a stupid wheelbarrow. It's that there, you have something stopping up your wheels. And that has to be removed so that you can move forward. And emotional wounds, what I'll call in the sermon weakening wounds, are wounds that make it so you can't grow in strength. Does that make sense? And it, it matters because there's some wounds that are like bruises and they go away, and others that leave scars, and it just leaves character, but it doesn't change your body's ability to do stuff. But there's some things like, you know, tearing your ACL or like, that like create wounds that even people can't see at all. And yet they, they can dramatically affect the way you can do stuff. And that's true emotionally as much as it's true physically. That there are wounds that you can receive emotionally, often at times that you're, you're not entirely aware of what's happening. Some of them have no relationship to reality because most of these things come from ages where we're not interpreting things very well. We'll interpret things to mean the opposite of what they were intended, but they will stay with us for decades. And if you don't deal with that stuff, if you don't face it, if you don't let God heal it, it will stop up the wheels of your spiritual maturity, and you'll only be as spiritually mature as you can ever become emotionally mature. Now, that's not literally exactly true, but there's something to it. Does that make sense? So one of the things to think about if you're like, well, I don't even know what you mean. I don't have emotional whatever you're talking about. Like, I don't want psychobabble for my sermon. Well, just hang with me for a little bit here, right? Just, just ask yourself for a second. It'd be really good if you wrote these down. Like, when these questions, like, come up with an answer, and if possible, if you have a pen, write something down, right? One is, what in your life— just isn't going well. Sorry, I wrote love, but it's supposed to be life. That was probably corrected by someone. Like, what in your life just isn't going well? There's, there's like, there's other things that are going well in your life, but there's something that's just not going well. What is that? Right? Second, where do you feel stuck? Like, in other places in your life, you know what it would mean to progress. But there's somewhere where, like, you just can't make progress, and you don't know why you can't make progress. You don't know what the next good thing is, to quote last week right? Where are you stuck? Third is, what bad thing seems to be recurring? Most of the times when I talk to people who are married, they're committed to each other, but they're really frustrated with their marriage. What they'll tell me is, they're like, Nick, we literally keep having the same four arguments over and over and over. We'll have this big argument, we'll do this thing, and then it will, it will put it away for a while, and then like six months later, a year later, two years later, it just comes back full force. It's the same thing all over again, right? What what is, what keeps recurring? And then what is internally stressing or crippling? Like, at what moments, during what times, when people say what things to you, do you just have an uncharacteristic reaction? Right? Um, wait, in what area of your life does it seem to just keep imploding? Like, everything else seems to be going— Like, there's some people that are really successful at work, and they just can't have a reasonably healthy ro romantic relationship just to save their life. Or it feels like your marriage is good, but your relationship with your second child is just really bad. And like, no matter what, you just can't seem to get it on track, right? It, look at the place where there seems like to be like a cyclical issue, right? Or 
where are you feeling worse than you'd expect given your level of competence? If you're just a profoundly incompetent person and you're failing at everything, that's fine. You might just not be good at stuff. That's totally cool, okay? Just do your best. But if, if you're normally a pretty competent person, you can do a lot of things. But there's like, there's a few things that like they don't, they're just not going as well as things normally go for you, right? I want to you to be like, well, I'm just not gifted at that. Okay, maybe. But it also may be that there's an emotional wound lurking there, and that keeps stopping up your wheels from making progress in that area. Does that make sense? All, now, none of those will definitively tell you what's going on, but all of those things are often signals. And in addition to that is, when do you feel anxious? Under what circumstances do you feel oppressed? There's all other, like, uh, internal psychological markers of emotional wounds. But these are some of the external ones. And so one of the things that you'll find is, like, one of the things that, that has really changed about, for example, um, male sexual addiction discipleship is when I was young, when I was like 18, and, and you would talk about, like, men dealing with things related to sexual addiction, usually it was basically like you would have a accountability group about stopping it. Does that make sense? That's pretty much changed now. Most of the materials and stuff that the church is producing is to be like, yes, you, you get people together and you try to stop it. And then you, begin, you try to realize why you needed it in the first place. Because it isn't mere licentiousness. And there, even when it is licentiousness, you're still turning to it for a comfort or excitement of some kind that God meant to produce for you another way, and you don't have the capacity to wait for it, look for it, turn to it. And there's a reason for that. Does that make sense? So oftentimes, even in some of our comforting sins, or our rebellious sins, or our reckless sins, like if you, if we really look at what's going on, there's an emotional wound and you are not going to progress beyond it until you turn and face it. And many of us don't want to deal with that kind of stuff. But listen, God is about that stuff and he's not going to let you not do it. In, in some cases, there's many of us who are treating symptoms relative to our faith rather than treating the real inhibitor of our real sanctification, which is the emotional wounds. Do you understand? And the reason why this is so important in a series on doing the next good thing and persevering and loving others is these wounds weaken us. Like, I know a lot of guys that just, they don't want to deal with that psychobabble stuff. Listen, your coping mechanisms can only take you so far. They drain you emotionally. They kill your energy. Your body is slowly breaking down from the stress of not being who you are. Your body's out of integrity with itself. And a lot of your energy for your intellectual life and your emotional life comes from your primal heart. And if those are disconnected because you can't let this part talk, you're losing energy. You're losing strength. You're out of integrity with yourself. You're, you're just—you're off kilter in ways you wouldn't expect, and things aren't working. And so you've created coping mechanisms, and you're like a big, strong, manly man or woman because you can, you can make those coping mechanisms work. That's not godliness. You're stuck in coping when God wants to take you into discipleship through healing. And the things that you work so hard to do right now could become a lot easier if you could heal and grow. Godliness is actually meant to be increasingly easier as you grow in Christ. But for some of us, we're still just like white knuckling it. And a big part of that is we won't give our whole hearts to God. Primacy of the heart. But a big part of it is we will not turn to God for healing. And so— Without being healed, we're weakened, and where we're weakened, we can't grow strong. So, um, one of the things we have to, we have to recognize that, especially Christians who focus on the scriptures and focus on personal salvation, we we tend to focus in a church like High Point a lot on the judicial nature of salvation. That we sin, sin produces guilt, 
guilt deserves condemnation, right? And condemnation deserves damnation. Jesus dies for our sins so that we can be forgiven and justified before God and therefore set right with him so we have the moral right to have a relationship with God. That, and therefore by believing in Jesus, we can receive all of that and be saved. Does that make sense? That is 100% true. Okay? It's 100% true. And it is just part of the gospel. Right? The Christian should then ask, what are we saved for? Which is not to be saved. That's redundant. We're saved for blessing, glorification. We should have something that goes there. But one of the things we're saved for, one of the results of salvation, is healing. God portrays himself in the Bible over and over again, all the way through the scriptures, as a healer. And that healing is part of your emotional sanctification, and you can't get around that. Let's do a couple of points on this rather, rather quickly. The first is, God hates sin because it's ruinously harmful, okay? It's, it, biblical evangelicals tend to think in terms of sin as, as um, that which is a sin against God. But why is God so upset about it? You can say, well, Jonathan Edwards said because it's a sin against the majesty of God. God is infinitely valuable, therefore when we sin against him, we commit an infinite wrong. Okay, sure, but why is it a sin against God's majesty? What does that mean? Is it just a sin against his rank, right? No, because God is in his divine majesty. He has created creation for its good and flourishing, of which he declared it is very good. Right? And he created human beings to take dominion and create more order out of that chaos so that the earth could flourish and human beings could flourish in gladness in it under his divine rule so that there would be blessing and flourishing and fertility and joy. Right? And sin destroyed that. And that is what God is angry about. He's not just angry in principle for sin. He's angry of the effect of sin, the meaning of sin, right? God is—sin is punishable because it's unrighteous. But why is it unrighteous? What does that even mean? It's unrighteous because it's unjust. It's not giving others what they're due. Why is it unjust? Because others are due flourishing, not destruction, hatred, and ruinous violence. Right? Sin is unjust because it is ruinously harmful. Now, if that's true, it means sin is not just a—it's not just a moral failure. It's incredibly consequential. That's why I never preach the gospel like this. Listen, the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Have you ever sinned at any time in your life, done anything in your life at all, that you know was not in God's will? Right? Anything. Like, talk Did you respect your mom? Right? Okay. The wages of sin is death. You're going to hell. Like, the damnation of God is upon you, right? I never preach the gospel like that. Not because it isn't true, but because it feels like a game. Because it kind of is one the way we play it. The point of the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 3, is not that any sin falls short of the glory of God, and therefore there is damnation. The point of Romans 1 through 3 is that our mouths are open graves, not that we talk back to our mom one time. That our hearts are full of hatred and selfishness. That whether you're a Jew doing it in a self-righteous way, whether you're a Gentile doing it in the um, riotous, licentious way, it doesn't really matter. We construct cultures and systems and lives and families full of ruinous, destructive sin. And it is unjust. And because it's unjust, it is unrighteous. And because it is unrighteous, it is consequential 
to the point of being damnable. Now, if that's true, why don't we really believe that sin is emotionally consequential? Why do we have a problem with that? Why do we think we're unharmable? There is this thing in the world for which God has created a hell, of which there are, there is a damnable attitude. God is enormously wrathful. He is, he is angry about sin because of his love, because it is a horror. From the moment in Genesis 3, sin enters the world, it creates ruin. It's not like sin enters the world in Genesis 3 and everything goes really fantastic and we build cities and flying cars and jetpacks, and, but God is just so angry we're doing it without him, he's going to kill us all. That's not what happens. The minute we sin, right? Two brothers kill each other. Lamech decides as many wives as he can manage is great, and he's going to kill people for doing anything to him. And like, it just goes ruinous until chapter 6, where it says the intent of the human heart was evil every moment, and God's heart was saddened that he had made man. And then you get the flood, and a restart, and a redemption. But sin continues to be horrifically ruinous. And listen, it has always been that way. It is that way now. And the result on human creatures that are developmental is a profound ruinous harm emotionally to us from sin that we perpetrate on ourselves, from sin perpetrated on us by cultures and systems, and from sin perpetrated on us from others. And to believe that it has not been consequential for you, and therefore you need no paths of healing, is just not a biblically theological position, even relative to the the most simple understanding of the doctrine of sin. Therefore, I think it's incredibly important for us, if you're a believer, you have to start by taking sin seriously. If you don't believe that you have emotional wounds, I would argue that automatically means you don't take sin anywhere near seriously enough, scripturally speaking. You just don't think it's that ruinous. And so it hasn't been ruinous for you. False. You don't have to be mad at God or yourself for all the emotional problems that you have that you can't deal with. Listen, yeah, yeah, you've contributed to them. Yes, I'll—but listen, start by hating sin. Sin is the ruinous, destructive presence that we go along with and that God should be wrathful about, but that he's also saving us from and wants to heal us from, right? The second is repentance is the first step in healing. To enter, and if God is a healer, the first step into that process is, is judicial salvation, believing in God for the forgiveness of your sins and entering into the relationship with God who goes from being judged to healer at the drop of a hat, right? You, and then you have to believe that God is a healer. Like, there's a lot of folks that, like, you just see God as a judge, and like, I remember seeing this, <clears throat> this film in which this guy said, listen, I have spent 50 years trying to scrub the face of my father off of the face of God. And what he meant was that his judgmental father, that he, that he was never good enough for, right? Like, God is a judge against sin, that is true. But he is a thousand other things as well. And one of the things he is, is a healer. The healer. The great physician, right? And then, fourth, like, you should expect to find consequential emotional wounds in you, inside of you. It's not, it's not like, you know, there's a few people that need therapy. That guy needs therapy. Have you ever been like, have you ever just like had an argument and been like, that person needs to go to counseling? Like, it's important for that guy, right? And but like, you know, and then like millennials and Gen Zers are like, you know, just, we, we just all go to counseling. Like, if you can afford it, it's just, you just talk with somebody, it's great. 
in one sense, that's, they're both true, right? There are some weakening wounds that are just more dysfunctional and more, and more ruinous than others in their current iteration. But we are all bearing the weakening wounds of sin and their effects on us emotionally that we need healing for. And then last is, we need to commit to pursue God's paths of healing. God has a way to heal us. Healing is different than justification. Justification is like, you're counted innocent because of the death of Christ. On your behalf, you contribute nothing to it. You receive it all at once. It's that simple. It's, it's momentary. Transformation and healing, if you've ever had to heal from something, you know that that's not momentary. You, and you have to participate in it, right? Especially emotionally. And so God has a path for your healing where his power and spirit work it, but you have to walk that path because it, you change over the course of it. Does that make sense? The second thing we're going to look at, and we're going to look at this for like one minute, is that God is a healer, right? If you look at, um, read Isaiah 61 later, the first verses, and he talks about this is after coming, people coming back from that exile where Jeremiah said there's no bomb in Gilead. He says what he's going to do is he's going to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and comfort all who mourn and those who grieve in Zion, right? He's going to be attentive to the mourner and the one who's lamenting and the one whose life has been wrecked and the one who recognizes just how much healing has to happen in them, right? And then if you look at the ministry of Jesus, you'll see this as well. Like, what did Jesus do in his ministry, right? Well, he, he called people to repentance, he taught about the kingdom, and then he healed people who were beyond healing. And do you know what he did more than heal people physically? The number one most common miracle of Jesus is casting out demons. Now, I don't, I don't believe that you can equate demonic possession in the New Testament and mental illness. I don't think you can do that, and I don't think you should do it. However, I believe that demonization can relate to and, and affect every human ailment. And I think that demonic activity can much worsen natural mental illness or mental illness that comes from, from wounds. I mean, everything, I, everything God uses and everything Satan uses, they, they work on what's already there. Do you understand? And Legion is the greatest example of somebody who had a legion of demons inside of him. He was beyond all hope. No one had any hope for him mentally or emotionally in any way because of his demonization. And Jesus freed him and it said he was at peace and in his right mind. Right? He was at peace. Like he was—he was relaxed. He was clothed. Like you could put some clothes on him. Like you could civilize the man, you know? And he was in his right mind. He was himself again. One person. Not 2,000. Does that make sense? And, and, and so when, when you read through Jesus, what do you take from Jesus casting out devils? Right? Well, one— Jesus has power over everything spiritual. Absolutely. As the Christ and the Son, he has power over everything spiritual. That's important. There are real devils, and he really casts them out. But in addition to that, he frees people who are, who are lost, who are beyond a hope of our capacity for healing, both physically and mentally and emotionally, because he's a healer. Do you understand? And his death brings in the kingdom, creates the opportunity for repentance and faith and salvation, and— creates the possibility to walk in his paths of healing, right? And then third, last, is that God has paths of healing for you to walk. And those paths of healing are part of your sanctification. You cannot avoid them. You could say, Nick, but there, aren't there like six things of emotions? Can't we do the other five? Listen, um, what, here's what I found in most cases. Uh, emotional healing is the last thing anybody wants to do. People avoid it as long as they possibly can. 
and they wait, or they never do it. And here's the problem with that. I think Dan Allender is right when he said, the pain which is not transformed ends up being transmitted. The pain that is not transformed ends up being transmitted. Um, I remember hearing somebody say one time, he said, you know what? People say that abuse is passed down from one generation to, an to another. And he's like, that's not really true. He said, because there's a lot of people that choose to not abuse the people that are coming to their lives after them because they were abused before, and they stop doing that. Here's the problem with that argument. It's, it's partly true. There are a lot of people who are like physically abused or terribly abused by a parent, and they say, I'm not going to do that to my kid, right? And so they don't do it the same way. They don't do it the same way. But because they didn't really know how the wound functioned inside of them, and they really weren't able to transform it through healing, they transmitted the pain and the wound another way. And they didn't mean to, and they didn't intend to, and they didn't want to, but they did. And it may be less intense for that next generation, but it's there, right? And so do not—don't wait till your kids are grown. Don't, don't wait to get married. Don't wait till anything. And if you're older, don't wait anymore. Like, just don't wait. Like, don't wait until your body's breaking down, you're having panic attacks, or you're, you're having inexplicable depressions, or like you can't make this thing work. Just don't wait for all that. Like, like, part of the function of sin is to put things off. Don't put things off. Don't put this off. If there's one thing I could implore upon younger people besides follow Jesus, that's number one. That's always going to be number one. Follow Jesus, right? Here's the problem. Because if, if you did that, he'd, you'd follow him right into emotional healing because that's where he wants to take you, right? But like, follow Jesus. The second one is don't wait to find the emotional wounds and to deal with them as soon as possible and as fully as possible. Because you will. You will. And you will regret it. And God will redeem it in a lot of ways but not so that you won't have regretted it. So, this, I want to look at just a couple of these paths. The first set of paths are that God heals with moral interventions. So, you might—you've heard of interventions, right, where somebody's doing something that's a really bad idea. They're dating all the wrong people, or they're just like, they're really stuck in alcoholism or something like that. And you get people together, you're like, hey, you can't do this anymore. Right? And they have to like kind of face that they're, they've got an issue because it's, it's a big enough issue that everybody in their life is like, we're not going to put up with this anymore. Right? Every time God says, don't do that. Because here's what, here's what happens. Our emotional wounds are like a energy source to drive us towards sin. For all kinds of reasons, I just can't get into right now. And so we relieve ourselves and we and try to seek enjoyment, or we try to avoid, or we try to do something by utilizing sins. And then God says, you, no, you can't do that. And you're like, but I want, I really want to do that. And you're like, but yeah, but you can't do that. Every time God makes a commandment that says you can't do that, he's actually engaging in a moral intervention to let you know that you have an emotional problem. Because listen, if you want to sin, you have an emotional problem by definition. Right? If sin is the character of God, and God is the God of flourishing and of creation— and of redemption, and you want to say, screw you, I'll do whatever the heck I want. I'm going to do this thing that's the opposite of your character. You have a mental problem that is rooted in an emotional wound. You're not fully connected to the image of God in you. You're more deeply connected to something else that rebels against him and hates him or is hurt in some way that doesn't want to be near him. And like, that's a problem. And every time he commands something, he's doing an intervention that's meant to help you. 
right? Because it means that either your conscience or your capacity for perception is broken. And sin always does that. If you read the first chapter of Romans, for example, five or six times it talks about our suppression of the truth. Like, something happens the way we see the world, that we just don't see it right, and we can, we can make sin look good and make God's truths look evil. And like, we'll, we'll invert all that stuff in our minds. And when God's like, no, here's the truth. It's meant to be an intervention. It's meant to confront us. It's not just a judgment or a demand. It's a psychological, emotional healing intervention. Right? So if you don't like God's rules, look at them that way. Because it's an act of love. Right? The second is, is that the message of the gospel, the truth about Jesus, is designed to help us not fall into false healings. Because one of the things that we're going to—we do with, without wanting to deal with our emotional issues is we turn to things that are like healing, but a lot easier, but not healing. So when, when human beings perpetrate evil or they do something that puts them out of whack with who they're meant to be in, in God, um, there's four—there's there's five things that they need, right? They need— First, they need remorse. They need to feel like the thing was wrong. Their conscience has to say, that wasn't good, right? Secondly, they need confession. They need to be able to say truly what happened in, a, in moral categories. I did this and I'm guilty for it. They need atonement. Something has to deal with the debt produced by what they did wrong. Something has to make things right. Fourth is reconciliation. They have to come back in a relationship with those that they've they've broken trust with. And then last is they need justification, something that counts them as right or good enough, okay? Now, all five of those human needs for emotional healing in evil, right, or in brokenness, they all have <clears throat> counterfeits. And you will find—and they, and they all have multiple counterfeits. And you will find people in the world, so to speak, or you will find people in the church— turning again and again and again to the counterfeits of those things. So, for example, I can't go into a lot of this right now, but this is actually a fairly complicated subject, but it's very important to understand. So, for example, instead of remorse, oftentimes we'll, we'll use diversion, right? Like, we'll, we'll always have some music playing. We'll always be like, have some stuff in our ears. We'll like, we'll be occupying our minds so that we don't have to deal with our need for remorse because we emotionally just don't want to deal with it, right? <clears throat> with confession— um, what people will do is they will, they will sometimes engage in blurting, which is like, it sounds like people are saying something shamelessly, like they don't think it's wrong, but they still feel the need to say it, and they'll say everything about it other than that it was morally wrong, right? And you, you hear people do this sometimes, where they'll, they'll describe like things they shouldn't have done. Like they'll describe their weekend, you know, like, and they're saying it all. At no point do they say, it was wrong. I shouldn't have done it. That was bad. But they just keep kind of describing it because description feels like a confession but we never actually confess, right? And then for atonement, we often punish ourselves in one way or another, rather than allowing the punishment of our sin to be on the death of Christ. And instead of reconciliation, coming back into reconciliation with those we should love and be loved by, we'll seek people who will order themselves around us in the false atonements, right? And so we'll say, okay, there is a—instead of seeking to escape guilt and to be restored— we pursue people that are in the same boat as us, and then we, we have guilty companions. But we're all okay with each other, right? And then instead of justification being counted right or made right by God, right, if God is for us, who could be against us? Instead, we justify ourselves. We come up with arguments and ways of explaining the things that we do so that we're right and the other person's wrong, 
You see this in arguments all the time where people are just kind of like, well, if you hadn't, and if this is this, and what I was really meant was that, and if you— blah, blah, blah. Right? Self-justification is, is the most obvious in other people and of these five. But there's, there's all kinds of things. And to the extent to which we engage in these false healings, we get hurt twice because we're not healing, and all of these things hurt us for another cycle. And then we do them all again, and again, and again, and it is a, it is a cycle of ruin. And see, the gospel comes in and says, no, 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 no. You need to feel remorseful because what you did was wicked. There's no defense of it. You're wrong. You're more wrong than you've ever imagined. Like, say, everything you ever know that you did wrong, and you're just scratching the surface, man. Like, don't, like, feel bad. It's okay to regret. It's okay to lament your own character morally. Like, that's good. That's a healthy thing. If then you confess it, including its guilt. So that if the one who stood in judgment wanted to kill you, they could kill you. They had every right to. No, but knowing beforehand that that one who is God in the person of his Christ has died for your sins, that a perfect atonement has been made, so that when you get done confessing and you stand fully guilty, you receive a word of atonement. You don't have to go and punish yourself. You don't have to go hurt other people. You don't have to believe— you don't have to, you don't have to like, try to upend the universe. You can receive atonement. Christ died for you. A penalty way beyond anything you could imagine was paid on your behalf already by Christ because sin is consequential, and you needed that, and it was done for you in him. And then what that means is you can be reconciled to God, and you can be reconciled to anybody who understands that reconciliation. That is the family of God, the body of Christ— right? The believers. And everybody recognizes that all who stand with Jesus stand justified. They're good enough to be loved, right? When you get those two parts straight, there's also a number of things that we sometimes call spiritual disciplines, which are basically paths of treatment. That when you use these disciplines and do these things, you—God uses them to heal you as you do them over time. Right? So one is lamentation, which is just like allowing yourself to feel terrible and saying it verbally and acting it out physically. It's just being sad, crying, feeling your feelings when they come, praying to God and telling him how disappointed you are, and all of those sorts of things. Like, people just try to shut all that stuff down, and it's really, really, really unhelpful. Right? Lamentation is part of life because pain is part of life. The second is prayerful processing. Um, I would love to talk about this for about 30 minutes, but I just—the brief version is that God is the perfect counselor. He's a great listener. He's fully truthful. So if you say stuff you really know is a lie, you kind of reproach yourself while you're talking to him in prayer. Right? If you really think of him being there, and he's 100% truthful, and you say something that you know is kind of stupid and not really true, you know it. You kind of know it, right? And you should invite the Spirit to, like, help you feel that. And, but also, he's 100% he's committed to you and 100% loving. He wants to hear it. He wants you to figure it out. He wants you to walk through it. He, he wants that. He's ready to listen. He's got all kinds of time because he's got all kinds of consciousness. He can listen to everybody all at once, right? And so praying in a way that's processing is important. Not just asking God for stuff and not just worship, but what you might call just pro processing prayer, where you just, you talk to God about what's going on, including your feelings, right? Third is identify and replacing lies. The truth of God is meant to identify lies and idols that we believe and bring them to the surface. 
so that we can see them for what they are, and so that we can start to replace them with the truth of God. Now that's, that process is a little bit more complicated because you have to really figure out why you really feel what you feel, and see what past experiences are linked together in your sort of your primal mind and why those things are so compelling. And then you have to like de-link them from each other and speak. So like there there are things related to my struggle with insecurities from my childhood where I've had to take the truth of the gospel and not just say, I believe the truth of the gospel. I'm good enough in Christ. I've had to actually go into my past and see how like 12 different events were linked together to show that I was worthless. This one fed on this one, which fed on this one, which fed on this one. And I had to go, I had to de-link them all and preach the gospel to every one of them individually after I listened to them. And that took hours. And it was so helpful. So helpful because I didn't just believe it here. I actually began to believe it here. Right? The fourth is ritual repetition. After about age seven, you don't engage with the world um, imaginatively anymore. Your mind has taken in millions and millions and millions and millions of messages and has interpreted them and put them in a structure. And then from about age eight on, that's the way your mind works. It works with, the, with the, these preset structures and it makes adjustments. Does that make sense? And so in order, once you get past 10, 12, 13, or definitely after your teenage years, um, you have to do things kind of over and over and over again to kind of rewire things, to reroute your consciousness, to actually physically rewire your brain is what also happens. Um, but don't—listen, your mind is not a slave to your brain. The two are compositely related in a way in which your mind can be as causal to your brain as your brain is causal to your mind. Don't, don't fall into a, a reductive materialism that all we are is a ball of neurons and that's all there is and we can't control anything. No. No, we are a kind of creature that through our consciousness can change our physiology. God has made us that way because he's made us spiritual creatures. And so you've got to repeat things over and over and over again. So worship is one of those things. You come and you adore God, and you adore God, and you adore God, and you attach your loves to what he loves again and again and again. And then over time, your affections move, right? You listen to the word of God over and over and over again. Preached, you read the scriptures, you, right, over, and you do it devotionally. You really listen. You write stuff down. You, you try to let it affect you. And over time, truths start penetrating and say, that's a lie. That's an idol. This is in the word of God begins to affect you. That's true for prayer and fasting and lots of other disciplines that you can utilize as these kinds of repetitive rituals that God uses as a path of healing. And then lastly is healing community. Jill likes to say a lot, and as well as other people, we get broken in community and we get healed in community. Um, Most of our emotional wounds we didn't literally just give to ourselves in a vacuum. We got them in community with other people. One of the ways you learn you're worthy of love is you let other people love you in the body of Christ. And you receive God's love literally through their choices and actions to love you. And then that over time begins to change you. And so, the, so that's one of the reasons why we have to fight so hard for the church to be healthy. And for this to be a loving community full of all kinds of people who care about each other deeply. Because this isn't just the place where we just gather until we go to heaven. This is the place where the healing of God is supposed to happen in the healing community of Jesus. Right? Even when, like, elders are supposed to stand up and do church discipline because somebody is wrecking the healing community. That's why we do it. Right? So, I need to end. Um, God portrays himself all through the scriptures as a healer. He does. And sin is so infinitely consequential in how you've perpetrated on yourself, how others have perpetrated on you, how it's come to you through generations, how it's affected you through the systems of our culture. In so many ways, it's harmed you 
and you've harmed others and participated in it, you're both a perpetrator and a victim at the same time. And God wants to create righteousness in you and cause you to cease from being a perpetrator. And he wants to heal you so that you can no longer be a victim and you can be whole and healed and just. Just like his son, Jesus the Christ, by the power of his spirit. And he does that by means of his healing and you can receive it. It is a necessary part of your growth. Does that make sense? Let's pray. God, as we um, take a minute to sing and then ask some questions about this stuff, um, would you please help us to believe these truths? Maybe in different ways. Maybe, maybe people don't like the way I said it, but I pray that you'd help people recognize that you want to heal the heart. The sin damages that you want to heal it. Your spirit is doing that work, and it can happen. More than we think. We pray that you convince us that and help us even now to turn our affections to you so that you can transform us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're on the, um, the chat,